What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accomplished by action. Faith by itself, if it is not accomplished by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. We're really glad you're here. Uh, And it is a really good time to be here if you're new or visiting because it's Baptism Sunday. Uh, One of the big celebrations in church life basically as good as it gets in a local church. And so in a baptism, what we are doing is celebrating new life in an individual. We're celebrating and, and, and modeling a, a deep inward transformation, and we're, we're showing it uh, in, in an outward way. It's a, it's a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality, that somebody has, has died to their sin in their old way. They've been buried, and yet they've been resurrected with Christ. And so, uh, huge celebration. Our friend Jack Thornburg is getting baptized uh, in a few minutes, so we could not be happier for him and more excited uh, to celebrate that. And one of the things I love about a baptism is that it's, it's something we can all be encouraged by. Every one of us in this room will be encouraged by hearing his testimony, how God has, has changed his life and seeing him be baptized. But not only that, whenever a, an individual is baptized, you can imagine all of the lives that are changed as a result of that one person coming to faith. Not just them, but the people that they interact with, family and friends. You can imagine even generations being affected by one person coming to faith. And so that's what we have to, to celebrate. I, I feel like I can live on a good baptism for like six months. And so I, I, you know, this is like the highlight of this is Christmas for a pastor, you know? So we're really glad you're here. Uh, this is something that's true of Christianity, and it's something that's true of, of any other religion, any other uh, system of thought, any, any social group, any, any government. And that's that the, the quality of what you believe is, is shown by your, your actions. Any, any system of thought, any idea, any society, what it, what it should be measured by is not simply what it teaches or what it believes, but by the world that it leaves behind for their children. That's, that's the true test of any, any idea, any social group, or anything else. How does it affect the lives of those who are its followers? What good is a system of beliefs if it doesn't inspire action? What good is a, a big production of religion or a, a grand following of the masses 
if lives are unchanged, if families aren't transformed, if society and culture is unchanged. And so this fall, we've been studying the book of James, which we've said is it's the New Testament book, or, or rather it's the wisdom book of the New Testament. It's, it's not just talk, it's, it's action. It's, it's not just words, it's, it's transformed behavior. It's, it's real life, it's, it's gritty. And, and James is, is showing us what does it look like now that we're in Christ together, how do we live that out? What does it mean to be in Christ together and how do we live that out among a new people like a congregation? And so the one big thing, you heard it in the scripture reading already, it's that faith and good works are inseparable. Love for God and love for your neighbor, they're, they're one in Christianity. When you love God, you will experience love for your neighbor, even love for your enemies. And that's the message this morning. So we're going to look at that in three ways. The relationship of faith and works. Second, the life of faith and works. And then third, becoming a church of faith and works. So let's begin with the relationship of faith and works. How, how do faith and works go together in the scriptures? Now, we, we had this in the reading. James is a brilliant communicator. And if you picked up on it, beginning in verse 14, he actually asks a question, sort of a, a thesis question for this passage. And then he provides a, a negative example, which is what not to do. And then he gives a summary of his statement at the end. And he gives a few positive examples that we'll look at in the second part. But first, he, he poses this question in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? And so that's a question. Can a person be saved if they have faith but they don't have good works? Now he gives this negative example, what not to do in verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now he finally gives his, his summary, his answer to all of this at the end of the passage in verse 24. He says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone by what they do and not by faith alone. And then in verse 26, the same thing in a different way. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And so what James is saying here is that if you claim Christianity, if you claim to be a Christian, but your life has not been changed by Christ, then you're not a true Christian or you don't have true and living faith. If you might say, well, I'm a Christian because I go to church and I believe in God and I believe in the Bible and that's enough. I don't have anything else that I need to do. James is saying that's a dangerous place to be spiritually. Now, remember, James is writing to a, a marginalized people, a, a people who are suffering, a people under heavy persecution. Many of them are, are impoverished. Many of them are being oppressed in their everyday lives. And so James, like his older brother Jesus, remember James is the younger brother of our Lord Jesus, he keeps coming back to these themes, mercy, justice, compassion for the weak and the hurting. 
And so this, this example that he gives, it's somewhat humorous, but it's heartbreaking when he, when he says, if you tell somebody who is without food and clothing to go and be blessed, go in peace, be well fed, but you don't actually do anything for all these things that they lack, what good is that? And in particular, the phrase that's used in this passage, go in peace, that's, that's alluding to the Old Testament concept of, of shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace and wholeness. It's this rich, theological, spiritual word. And so what James is saying is if you're, if you're invoking the peace of God, if you're using this righteous spiritual language, but you're not actually doing somebody for your own brother or sister in need, it is no good. It is literally a dead religion. And so James has some, some strong words for us this morning. And remember the context into which James is writing. He's, he said in, in chapter 1 that true religion is the care of orphans and widows and personal purity in the world. In the last passage, James chapter 2, we had last week, he condemns church members for showing favoritism to, to the rich, to the impressive, the well-connected. And so it's into this context that he continues on this theme of mercy and justice and compassion. And you can imagine somebody saying, and this is the question that James is dealing with, but I, I have faith. I, I believe in God. I believe that I've been changed and that's all that I need. I don't need to do good works. I don't need to have righteous deeds. My faith is enough. And this is the 2,000-year-old question the Christians have been wrestling with. Ever since the foundation of the church, Christians have been wrestling with this tension of faith and good works. How do they fit together in the Christian life? Some of you might say, well, I, I don't need faith, I, or I, I have faith and I don't need good works. Good works is too much of a, a Catholic thing. I, we saw this hundreds of years ago. I, I'm not a Catholic. I don't need good works. And we would say, first of all, take it easy on the Catholics, right? They've had a hard 500 years. But second of all, how do grace, how does faith and good works go together? And in particular, James is teaching on works that we have in this passage. How does it relate to the Apostle Paul's teaching on grace? This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. It is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, that it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then in Romans 1, he says, For the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written in the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. Now, this, this might seem quite different because James is saying you cannot be justified without works. And Paul is saying you can't be justified by works. And so if we can't be justified without works and we can't be justified by works, what does that mean for us? Either it's a contradiction and one of them is wrong and we have to choose one or the other, or if they're both right, it seems like we can't be justified, we can't be made right, we can't be saved at all. And so which is it? Is it James or is it Paul? Are you a, are you a James Christian or are you a Paul Christian? And as I like to say in basically every Q&A session I've ever done, I reject the premise. Whatever the question is, I, I reject the premise. You know, it's like when people ask me, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I reject the premise. 
That's why I don't get invited to a lot of Q&A sessions. What, you know, do you believe in this 100% fully, or do you reject it completely and believe in something else? And I say, I'll tell you what I reject. I reject the premise. You know, it's a simple question, and I reject it and its premise. James, it, it seems that he knew about Paul's teachings. James wrote before Paul's uh, books became scripture, but he still understood Paul's teachings. And he, what most scholars believe is that James is actually using the language of Paul, but he's filling it out with his own teaching. And so he's using these words of, of grace and works and deeds and justified, but he's using them in his own way to kind of balance and fill out what the early Christians had been learning from Paul. Now, both Paul and James use the same word, justify, but they use it a little bit differently. To justify normally means to, to make right, to, to pay off a debt, to vindicate, to fulfill obligations. And so you can imagine if you're at work and your boss comes to you and says, hey, did you finish paying our taxes? Did you pay the company taxes? I need to make sure that we're good. You might say, yes, we're justified. We're all clear. There is nothing left. The debt has been paid. We're in the clear. We're justified. That's the primary meaning of the word justified, both in the Greek and as we use it in English. But in the Greek and in English, there's also a second meaning for justify. Justify can also mean to demonstrate, to prove, to authenticate, or to confirm. And so if your boss says, well, I, you know, I really want to make sure that we have those taxes paid because it would be catastrophic if they're not paid. Can you show me some kind of receipt or some letter back from the IRS? And then you pull out the letter and you say, here's the transaction. It's, you know, signed and stamped by the IRS. This will justify our position. Now, that paper doesn't actually justify your company. The paper itself didn't pay the debt, but it demonstrates that the debt had been paid. And so James and Paul are using the same word, but they're using it in each of the two different ways that it can be used. And so Paul says you can't be justified by works. He's saying you can't be made right. You can't be vindicated. You can't be saved by works. And then James, in a really similar way, he says you cannot be justified without works. And he's using the demonstration language. So he's saying you can't be saved if you don't have a life of good works demonstrating your salvation. If there's no evidence of good works in your life, then you haven't been justified before God. Paul is describing how to be justified, and James is describing how to live justified. Now that you are justified, good works will emerge. And so both of them agree on this, that faith and good works are inseparable. If we misinterpret James and we believe that we're only justified by works alone, we might find ourselves saying that, that Jesus is, is fine and good and, and church is optional. All I really need to do is work hard and be a good person. And really where that leads us, at least as I've experienced it, is like angry suburban uh, Facebook. All I need to do is do better and be a good person all the time. And yet if you misinterpret Paul, as a lot of Christians do, we might think that our behavior doesn't matter at all. What matters is only right theology. And what that leads to, in my experience, is angry, reformed Twitter. If you're familiar with it, if you're not, God bless you. You're doing well. But we have people that if you misinterpret one or the other, you don't have a whole and a holistic Christianity. One of the most helpful illustrations I've heard is that, you know, we see with two eyes. Every time we look at something, 
we're looking at it with both a, a dominant eye and supporting vision from our other eye. And so depending on how close it is or how far away it is, having two eyes is what brings clarity. Now, you can, you can see everything with one eye, but you lack the depth perception, you lack the focus, you lack the clarity that you have when you're looking with two eyes. And so James is, is right, and he's looking with clarity, and Paul is right, and he's looking with clarity, but both of them together is what gives us depth perception. Both of them together is what gives us the clearest possible vision of what it means to be justified and to live justified. And so faith and good works, they're not opposed to each other. They're not two things that we have to balance, but instead they're two things that we need to integrate into our life. And so that's the second thing. What does a life of faith and works look like? Now, James's whole thesis statement was verse 24. A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And he's given this negative example, but now he's going to give two positive examples. One that was very familiar and well-known for the Israelites, and then one that's actually a little bit of a curveball. It's a shocker. Now, the first one is the example of Abraham. Verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Now, some of you know this story pretty well, but I want us to take a quick look at it. Again, it's found in Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis 22, we see the story of Abraham and Isaac. God has promised to make Abraham into this great nation, the nation of Israel. And yet he and his wife Sarah, they're, they're advanced in age. They're over a hundred years old. And even after this promise comes to them that they will have a child and they will become a great nation, there's still decades before that promise is fulfilled. And so finally, Abraham and Sarah, they have a son, this son whom they love, Isaac. And yet God says to Abraham, Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to Mount Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now it says that they set out and they're climbing the mountain for three days. And you can imagine the agony that Abraham is experiencing. He finally has a son. He's old enough to, to walk and talk and climb this mountain with him. And yet for three days, he's wrestling with the anguish of what God has asked him to do. Could you even imagine a situation where you've been asked to give up your only child? Most Christian parents can't even function when their kid wants to go on a mission trip. I mean, this is the ultimate release of a child. And Abraham trusts God. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem right. But he keeps moving forward. He keeps going on the Word of God. Now, upon reaching Mount Moriah, Abraham builds an, an altar and he, he lays out the wood and then he ties up Isaac and lays him on the wood. And just as you would any Old Testament sacrifice, before lighting the fire, Abraham lifts his knife to kill Isaac and it says, the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, stop. And it's, it's as if the hand of God stops the hand of Abraham. And he says, don't lay a finger on the boy. And so Abraham looks up and there is a ram caught in the brush nearby. And so he unties Isaac and Isaac is set free. And instead, this substitute is provided. 
The ram is laid on the altar and sacrificed in place of Abraham's son. Someone has taken his place in death. And so Abraham, after the sacrifice was complete, he built this altar and he called it, the Lord will provide. And then probably on the way back down on the mountain, you know, he's like, all right, don't mention this to mom for a little bit, you know? Isaac's like, no, this one's going in the book. This has got to, we got to remember this. Abraham is no perfect man. So many mistakes throughout the scriptures, and yet he had faith. This faith that was alive, he was willing to lay down what was most precious to him for the Lord. It's a life and death faith. It's a a real life, vibrant, good works kind of faith. Now, the second example that that, uh, James gives us for faith and works, it's the curveball. It's the one that you don't see coming if you're a, a Hebrew at this time. And it's the example of Rahab. Verse 25, he says, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now, Rahab is one of the heroes of the book of Joshua. Her story's not quite as famous as, as Abraham and the fact that she was not an Israelite. She was a, a Canaanite, plus she was a prostitute. Not a very likely hero for Israel to remember and celebrate on the same level that they did with Abraham. But James said, what about Rahab? What about this outsider who had lived a life of sin? Consider what she did when she risked her own life to free the spies. And so these Israelite spies in Joshua, they'd come into the promised land to to scout it out. But they had been found out, and so they go into hiding, and Rahab takes them and hides them on her roof. And so when, when the Canaanites come and ask, did these men come to you? She says, yes. And then she, send, she says, they left, and she sends them off in another direction. And then she lets them down the city wall so that they can escape. Now, it's not just the spies whose lives were saved. If they were caught, then Israel would have been found out. Israel would have been wiped out. They would have been destroyed. And if that happens at this point in Joshua, then, then there's no David, there's no Solomon, there's no temple, there's no Psalms, there's no celebrations, there's no more sacrifice, there's no Jesus. And so Rahab literally saves the entire people of Israel. She literally saves all the promises of God to Israel in this moment. And so James says, what about Rahab? Now, what I love about Rahab is she actually seems to join the Israelites right after this because it's hundreds of years later that she's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 1, it says that she married the great-grandfather of David, Boaz, and then it was through David that we received the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And so once more time, Rahab is a hero in the story of Israel. And so all due respect to like the Marys and Sarahs and and Rebecca's and Rachel's in the world, but we need more Rahab's in the world. If you're looking for a girl name, Rahab's about as good as it gets, you know? You call her Ray, that's trendy. Think about it. But you look at these two examples, Abraham and Rahab. And this is what James is laying before us as a model of faith and works. He's saying if you want a vision for spiritual maturity, if you want a definition of true human flourishing, look at Abraham and look at Rahab. See how their faith was was expressed and made complete in the good works that they did for other people. 
See how they, they feared God. It says of, of Rahab that she, she believed that the God of Israel was the one true God. Both of them had this life and death trust in Him, even when it didn't make sense. And in the case of Rahab, she shows that she loves others as herself. She treats others as she would have wanted to be treated. There's a connection between faith and good works that's quite simple. In fact, Jesus has a whole verse on it, a couple of verses. Matthew 22, he says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The connection between faith and good works is love. Love being expressed for God the Father, it it fills up in our hearts and then it overflows onto all those who are around us. It overflows into love for our neighbor, treating others as we want to be treated, seeing the love of God not just move to us, but move through us. Now, the third thing, how do we become a people? How do we become a church of faith and good works? Because James isn't just writing to individuals. He's not just, you know, leading a Bible study or, or you know, preaching an online sermon that people can watch from, from home or a coffee shop or whatever. He's writing to a distinct people who are together and they're suffering. They're facing real challenges. They're trying to figure out life together. And he's expressing them, how do we live in Christ together? And he's saying the church must become a place of faith and good works. It must be a a fellowship of faith and good works. I think James wants to say to us today that you cannot love God without loving other people. You cannot love God without loving especially those who are unlike you. You cannot love God without loving what he loves who he loves, and how he loves. Or to put it positively, when you love God, when you love God, you will love what he loves. You will love justice and mercy. You'll you'll love purity and holiness. And when you love God, you'll love who he loves. And and who does God love but, but all people? and especially the poor and needy. You see this all throughout the Psalms, the prophets. You look at the life of Jesus, and you see God's love and God's heart for for the outcast, for the refugee, for the tax collector and prostitute, the the sick and the dying. These are the ones that get Jesus' special attention. These are the ones that get God's love. And so when we love God, we will love who he loves. But also when we love God, we'll love how he loves. We'll love recklessly, unconditionally, lavishly, over the top, forgiving with with no grudges being held, no conditions being demanded. We'll simply love in the way that God loves. And so I think James wants to ask us, how could you possibly be a follower of Jesus and not be concerned for the practical needs of other people? How could you know God's love for you and not show it to others? How could you receive this unbelievable grace and then, and then hold it over others as if they have to pull it all together? 
How could you have nothing to offer and yet be lifted up into eternal life and yet not lift up your brothers and sisters out of poverty or oppression? Yesterday we were serving in in a neighborhood that we go to once a month and we've been doing it for a few months and we just try to have a a presence there and build a relationship. Yesterday we were picking up some trash and so Joseph and I, my oldest son, we were uh, in the woods behind some of these houses and there's just a bunch of trash that's kind of collected down there. Uh, And there was another gentleman who's about 70 who was cleaning up trash down there with us. And so we just got to talking and I asked him, you know, how long have you been in Columbia? Which I expect to hear, you know, I came here for college and I never left. You know, that's the standard answer. Uh, But he said, it's actually a funny story. And what had happened was he had spent his whole life in, in the Northeast. And he, when he reached retirement age, he had had a successful, comfortable life and he retired. And he and his wife moved to Florida. And they spent nine years living in Florida. And he said during that time, he was reading the scriptures and he began to see more than ever before God's heart for the weak and the poor and the needy. And he began to realize that his entire life, he hadn't really invested in the poor and needy. He hadn't really served people in a lower position than himself. And so he and his wife began to ask the Lord to show them a place that they might serve And they got in their RV and drove across the country asking God and listening for a place that they might serve. One thing leads to another, and they they meet people at City of Refuge, which is a a ministry and and an organization for refugees in town that we partner with. And they end up putting down roots in Columbia, moving here. And I get the impression this guy just like volunteers all day, every day. I mean, how incredible, how marvelous is it to reach a point in life where, where the world tells you you should just relax, you should just put up your feet, play golf, whatever people do in Florida. And yet he sees the value and the joy and the peace that comes in serving others. Not in, not in charity, not looking down on other people who, who have less, but identifying with others in their needs and recognizing we are desperately needy ourselves. And not just doing charity to those below, but being below ourselves and serving and being present with those who could use our help. This is no dead orthodoxy. This is no, you know, happy, clappy spirituality that puts on nice clothes and a smiling face on Sunday. You know, James says in verse 19 that even the demons have orthodoxy. They have good and right theology. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. He's saying the demons have right theology. The demons even have fear of God. They they recognize Him and they shudder in His presence. And so if they have the right theology and they have an appropriate fear of God, what do they lack? And they lack love. How How many Christians are there? How easy is it for us to be a people that understand the Scriptures, have good theology, have a general fear of God, and yet not have love? James is calling for a true, vibrant, active, on the ground, in the neighborhood faith. A faith that's willing to to uproot, a a faith that's willing to to give up dreams and and goals, a faith that's willing to, to move into neighborhoods, a faith that can be expressed in incredible deeds of mercy and compassion to other people. 
I've been reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer this past week. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German minister, and in the 1940s, he was imprisoned and eventually executed for speaking out against Hitler. And before his death, he wrote a letter from prison, and he wrote, the church is only the church when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell everyone what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. Bonhoeffer says what it means to live for Christ is to exist for others. If your life hasn't changed, it's not Christianity. If, if you're not becoming more like Jesus, then it's not Christianity. If you're not expressing your faith and good works, if people aren't being changed around you, it might not be Christianity. To love God is to love our neighbors. To live for Christ, in Bonhoeffer's words, is to exist for others. Now, the last thing, and this is, this is the best part. It's the best part every week. How do we get this faith? We've talked about faith and good works. We've talked about the love of God filling us and overflowing onto others. But how do we get this love of God into our hearts? How do we get this true and active, this vibrant faith? And we've already seen the preview in Genesis 22. And the New Testament tells the full story that God the Father took His one and only Son, His beloved Son, Jesus, and He led Him up the mountain. God laid Him out on the wood, and Jesus laid down His life willingly. Darkness fell across the land. Creation cried out in pain. But this time the Son was not spared. No one can stop the hand of God. And death fell upon Jesus. There was no substitute because he is the substitute. He bore our sins on that wood. Why would God do that? Because of love. Love for you. Because there is no other way. Abraham would not withhold his son for God, and God does not withhold his son for you. And Mount Moriah, the site where where Isaac was taken, where the ram was sacrificed, Moriah was the very place that the temple would be built hundreds of years later. The glorious temple of of Israel where the people could gather and and celebrate, have these festivals. They, They wrote psalms and sang psalms. They brought their sacrifices and offering to this temple at Mount Moriah. And it was the new temple, the the new Moriah, where Jesus would enter and where he would be put on trial and sent for his execution. And when they took him outside the city and, and outside the camp, the sacrifice was made. But it was in that temple, the curtain that that separated the people from the holiest place where the presence of God was manifest. The scriptures say that the the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And that means that now the people of God can fully enter the presence of God, but it also means the presence of God can come bursting forth. That there's now nowhere safe from the presence of God, but He will shine throughout the entire world. There's nowhere where He cannot go to pursue us. The full presence of God searching after His people. And so Jesus was dead and he was buried. 
But again, no one can stop the hand of God. And on the third day, after three days of the Father's agony, he was lifted to new life. And he walked out of the tomb and he walked out into daylight on that Sunday morning. And life and victory and power and glory forever. And this is true love. It's not the love that we show one another, which is often so, 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 you know, conditional. It's so broken. It's so small. I can't go a day without yelling at my kids right now. True love, it says in the New Testament, is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love and, and the life that it creates, which is totally by grace, it gives us this true and living faith. It gives us these good works. It allows us to exist for others. And even more, it's, it's God's love that creates a new community of people who can love what God loves, who can love who God loves, and who can love how God loves. Let's pray.